This is Poured Over, a show about stories presented by the booksellers of Barnes & Noble. I'm Ewa Messer. I'm the producer and host of Poured Over. And Hernan Diaz, if you did not see or read In the Distance, his debut novel, which was a finalist for the Pulitzer Prize, Trust is his new novel. It is just out and it is wildly well-timed. And I'm going to let Hernan explain what I mean by that. Do you want to set it up? Well, thank you, Miwa. I'm a big fan of your show. I've listened to many of the episodes and I, it's, it's such an honor to be here. And also Barnes & Noble is such a big part of our family life. We live a block away from the one on Court Street. My daughter and I go there all the time. It's genuinely a pleasure to be here and I'm looking forward to our conversation. So yes, Trust is a book about extreme wealth and capital. There are two reasons, uh, main reasons, I should say, that moved me to write this book. The first one was that I became interested in the almost mystical dimension that capital has in American culture. And the book was written during the uh, Trump years. For the most part, I became very fascinated additionally by how money and wealth were able to shape the reality around them. This to me was a fascinating thing. The second reason is that Although a capital has this transcendental aura in American culture, looking back at the American canon, I found that there were very few novels that dealt with capital itself. Sure, there are a number of novels that deal with, let's call it the symptoms of wealth, class, eccentricity, the eccentricities of the wealthy, uh, or even sort of the effects on the marginalized population, sort of a, the flip side of wealth, which is poverty and exploitation. You see all of this, and there's a vast, rich tradition about that. But there are precious few books that deal with the process of accumulation and how that impacts on reality. And I'm not saying that my book is here to fill that void. All I'm saying is that that void made me tick and made me curious. And it was a productive absence to me. A productive absence that turned into a really great story. You've written a book about a book, in essence. And we are going to go spoiler free in this conversation because there's a lot that happens where the emotional payoff is really significant. And I refuse to ruin that for another reader. I absolutely refuse. Thank you. I um, I read this book very quickly, which some people might say, oh, well, that's a great thing. And other people will say, well, why are you rushing? It's not that I was rushing. It's just that I didn't want to leave the story because of the way it's structured. You've created four separate books. The first piece of the novel is Bonds by Harold Vanner. The second piece is called My Life by Andrew Bevel. The third is a memoir remembered by Ida Hartenza. And the last piece is called Futures by Mildred Bevel. And we're going to just maybe hang out mostly in the first three sections of this book. Sounds wise. So first we meet this couple, Benjamin and Helen Rask. And would you fill in some of the gaps without spoiling their story? Because it's kind of wild. <laughs> Okay, yes. So first, a quick word about the structure of the book. As I educated myself, you know, I come from the humanities, I have a PhD in, in comparative literature, so very far removed from the world of finance. So it was, a, it was a steep incline learning curve. As I educated myself on this topic, two things really grabbed me and became central concerns for me, and they're interlinked. The first one is that a fortune or money or capital in general is highly mediated. It's made up by many layers of 
mainly labor, really, appropriated labor. So it seemed wrong to tell the story about capital in one sort of monophonic voice. It had to be a plural voice because the nature of capital is plural. That was the first decision, sort of the subject matter informing the form. <laughs> Sounds redundant, but there you go. The second thing I learned during this brutal education was that this was a women-less world. There are zero women in the narratives of capital. By this, I mean not only the few fictions around capital that are out there that I mentioned at the beginning, but also sort of in, in historical accounts. I read a lot of history books, but also I usually the way in which I work, I focus on primary materials. So I was reading books by financiers. And yeah, every now and then there is sort of mention of wife as the great woman behind the great man, that cliche thing. But it's a purely masculine world, which to me was something that had to be dealt with because obviously the women were there. And obviously they had been silenced and erased out of these stories. These two cores that I came up with, on the first hand, the highly mediated nature of capital. On the other hand, the absence of women dictated a little bit the form of the book. So that this is why there are four books, because it's a very mediated narrative. And also the book is about the meaning of having or being deprived of a voice. Who is given a megaphone <laughs> and who is gagged, populating the book with different voices, some of which have been suppressed and come out, you know, that, that's part of the experience of reading the book. So populating the book with all these voices, making this polyphonic book was very important to me. The first book, the novel within a novel, it's called Bonds by this fictional novelist called Harold Vanner. And Harold Vanner is one of the central characters in the book, but he never appears in the book. He doesn't have a body. He doesn't have, he has a voice in as much as we read his novel, but then we don't see him. We never get to meet him. We only meet his work. And people talk about his work a lot in the book. So the novel is written toward the end of the 1930s during the Great Depression. And his voice is a little outdated. He's a little bit decadent. He's a very Jamesian or Wertonian. So it's sort of a turn of the century voice. Oh, sorry. That's my mom calling. <laughs> <laughs> hi, so, mom. Hi, mom. So, oh, the age of Zoom. You can leave that in if you think it's charming. Uh, I think we might actually. <laughs> okay. <laughs> so, the novel is told in this sort of a little bit intentionally anachronistic or decadent tone. And it is, to a certain extent, a novel of manners. It's a novel about this couple, Benjamin Rask, uh, who is one of the wealthiest men in the world. That, that's the extent of his fortune, who meets the penniless daughter of Albany aristocrats. Sort of, she's a blue-blooded Dutch settler, pre-Revolutionary War family, but they're totally broke. But they connect in some way that they're, they're both, uh, to a certain extent, introverts and very different. And they connect through this difference. We just see uh, Rask's ascent from an immense wealth to something that is really out of control and his role in the 1929 crash. We also see, uh, to some extent, what happens emotionally to his wife around this sort of heroic or pseudo-heroic ascent and what toll it takes on her. So this is the first novel and it's told in this very, to a certain extent, lush prose. It was important to me that there was some kind of sympathy between the uh, style and the world the style is depicting, but it's also, to a certain extent, very removed. It's a very hovering kind of prose. There's no dialogue. There are a couple of things that happen, too, that are a little wild, but they telescope who these people are. I mean, at one point, Helen's yeah. parents take her to Zurich, and they get stuck there because World War I starts and they had no idea it was coming. Yes, Helen and Benjamin are brought together by Helen's mother. 
who's yes. also kind of been using her daughter as a party trick. Helen's got a prodigious memory. She speaks multiple languages. She can talk about books until the cows come home, among other things. And she's got all of these abilities. And Mama thinks, well, I've got to find a home for my daughter because that's the era. Yeah, that's the era. They did something that people used to do at the end of sort of turn of the 19th to 20th century. Impoverished uh, American aristocrats would uh, sort of go to mainly Italy and British ones too, and basically kind of couch surf through Europe and freeload and crash at wealthier friends' villas and things like that. And so Helen's mother is, she's very astute socially and, uh, and a climber and a matchmaker eventually for her own daughter. And her father, on the other hand, is a mystic. He becomes sort of engulfed in this world of slightly paranoid mystical plots and conspiracies. He starts out as a Swedenborg scholar and then becomes sort of sucked in by these occult circles. And they're really out of it. She's a socialite. He is lost in the celestial uh, realms. And they have an utter disregard sort of for everyday life. They couldn't care less. So in effect, they're trapped in Switzerland for the duration of the war and they have no means to return to the United States. So Helen is also, she has this weird upbringing. You know, you, know, you just heard about her parents, but she's also from nowhere, really, which is something, you know, I personally also can relate to a little bit, having moved around so much. Well, and that sense of exile and isolation isn't limited to Helen because even Benjamin, who grew up in a very wealthy family in New York, his experience of family is what his legacy is. This is my great-grandfather. This is my great-grandfather's father. Da, 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 and readers will learn this. He can break out what each of these men represents and how they responded to events in their day. They're not people to him. So even in his own home, he's isolated. Even in his own home, he lives in a kind of exile because at some point, both of his parents die. He's surrounded by staff. He's got all of these young baby bankers who want to work for him and learn his magic. And yet yeah. when they leave his employ, they can't duplicate what he does. No. Yeah, exactly. Exactly right. I would also add to the series of exiles that you mentioned, he's exiled within his marriage too. Yeah. And I think one of the challenges for me, and, and of course, marriage is one of the maybe like five topics there is, you know, for novels. One of the challenges for me was to write about a marriage where the man this very incredibly powerful man is absolutely mesmerized by his wife. It's this profound love that he feels for her, but he can't voice it. He can't act on it. On the other hand, uh, his wife, this it's totally asymmetrical. She doesn't correspond this, but it didn't want for her to be disdainful of his feelings. I always wanted for her to be almost, and I say this without any kind of condescension, but compassionate. Like she she understands who he is, what he feels, but cannot reciprocate. And it's a relationship of enormous respect and enormous care, but utterly loveless on her, on her side. And that to me was a very interesting nuanced tone to explore, you know? There's an emotional truth to your novel within a novel. The story that Vanner is telling of this couple, Benjamin and Helen Rask, that when you get to the second section of your book, when you get to My Life by Andrew Bevel, and you realize who this guy is mm. and what he's talking about, mm. I had one note. <laughs> oh, can I have it? The, the note is literally just that the voice in the second section to me as I was reading, and then when I got to the third section, I was like, oh, I was right about this. It felt really unctuous, and it felt a little 
fraudulent to me. Not in the sense that I didn't think you knew the voice cold. I'm just saying I didn't trust the man who was telling me the story. Yeah. I thought well, he, was, he just rubbed me the wrong way. And it was great because I'm thinking, yeah. all right, how did these two pieces yeah. balance each other? Right. Well, I'm very glad and I'm sorry. I know it's an easy shot, but you used the word trust. Yeah. <laughs> It's a softball that I have to sort of mm-hmm. go back. The book and the title, of course, has this double meaning, the financial meaning of trust and the, let's call it emotional meaning of trust, if trust is an emotion. But the second part of the book, I suppose we moved on to that, starts posing this question about trusting the voice. We go back to the voice issue as well, right? To what extent can I trust this voice? And the book, to a large extent, is questioning the contracts we enter into as readers. Every time we read anything, you know, I feel that every text has a tacit, has an implicit, those Apple agreements we scroll through and click without reading. That happens with every text. There are terms and conditions that we enter into and tacitly accept whenever we read whatever we read. And the terms and conditions usually have to do with the level of truthfulness and veracity we attach to the text. So again, trust. And this is something that interested me enormously about this narrative. And that's why also it has this slightly bizarre form of the the book and, and has all these, I call them documents, these four sections, and how these documents make you question your trust in what you have just read and what lies ahead in the book. So yes, it is this voice. And again, I would have to say it was written during the Trump years again. This voice is designed to be a little annoying, honestly. It's a tough voice to read in the sense, it's a short section by design too, like it's whatever, 40 pages or something, and it's very fragmentary, so it's not even full 40 pages. I would say it's maybe 20 when you compile them all together. But it is designed to produce a certain degree of distance and discomfort. And I think that's very important. And it's also a section, there's a lot of money talk in it, you know, which I was also very interested in. And this is related to, again, the notion of trust in political discourse, right? Which is, I feel, especially with the financial genre, if there is such a thing, I think a certain degree of obfuscation is baked into the prose always, as if to tell readers or listeners that this is really esoteric stuff. And if you haven't been trained in this money cult, there is no hope for you. And you can resign yourself to not being able to understand what this is about. And this distance is intentional. And I wanted to explore that in this section of the book. That language is really important. That distance is also really important, but it's also very revealing about Andrew Bevel because he believes with his entire body and soul, that his financial success is tied to the success of America. Yes. That he has this outsized role in the success of not just the market in the U.S., but it's almost like those folks who believe that, you know, your morality goes hand in hand with the amount of money you have, that somehow your success is measured. And it's wild to see him reveal himself. It's wild. I think it's something that's in American culture since the pilgrims. You know, I think it's a very Calvinistic idea. It just didn't happen during Ronald Reagan or something. It's a deep notion. The fact that a material success in this world is sort of a harbinger or a sort of a form of enunciation of the rewards that lie beyond this world. I think that's very embedded in, in the way in which we look at the world by we women, people who live in the United States. And Bevel is a character too. I mean, he really... He's a little sanctimonious. 
<laughs> oh, intentionally he's, so. No, no, no. He's sanctimonious. He's self-righteous. Mm-hmm. And also, I mean, not to get all sort of current eventsy on you, but to me, it was also fascinating to see, you know, I was reading about re- the Republican administrations in the 1920s. And then here we were with a Republican administration in almost the 2020s, you know, and the ideological continuity between those two projects and the sanctimoniousness of both was just so incredible to me and so revealing. Like, I confess, I, I didn't know the extent to which there was there was a direct line from one period to the next in terms of fiscal policy, you know, the tax cuts for the rich, which in, in the 20s, when the top marginal tax rate went from like 70, 75% to 22%. And drastic cuts were taking place as I hear in the present as I was writing it. The notion of American exceptionalism, like you had Harding running on his campaign slogan was America first, you know, small government, big business, deregulation of financial practices across the board, restrictions on immigration, you know, from certain countries, not all of them, Asia and Italy in the 20s, or regions rather than countries. And the list really goes on and on and on. Protectionist tariffs, blah, blah, blah. So there was something there that to me was important to address and a voice that was important to capture that goes back to, again, this this kind of Calvinist mystical notion of material success, but also is embedded with in the history of the Republic party in this country and was to me very present today. And it all comes tied in with this, as you said, the sanctimonious tone, a stomach. It was hard to live in that world for the time it took to write it. There's one other piece that I think modern readers will grab much more quickly than Andrew himself, which is in today's terms, he'd be a billionaire. I mean, this man has made insane amounts of money and he claims that it's all based on sort of instinct and, you know, hard work, all of the things that we've heard a million times before. Dude has no sense of humor about himself. Zero. None. Nothing about himself is funny. Never. Again, it was really hard to inhabit that voice for that all that time. He takes himself extremely Mm -hmm. seriously, extremely seriously, is infallible too. Like he can't make a mistake. And all of this also, I I would like to come back to reel this back in all the time to American history in the sense that I was reading all these first hand materials like Andrew Carnegie's biography, Henry Ford's autobiography, Calvin Coolidge's autobiography, and the list goes on and on and on. And I went back all the way to Benjamin Franklin. And they they all had this in common. And I give one of my characters this line, you know, because I sort of included my own archival process in the book. It's one of the protagonists is actually this rifling through papers is an important thing in the book. The unshakable certainty of these men that they deserve to be listened and that their lives were extraordinary, and that their lives were faultless, you know, and exemplary. It's really psychotic. The narcissism is mind-boggling. So I try to give this character that complete certainty, which is just demented. It's demented, but it is, as much as I was saying, you know, the voice is unctuous and everything, it's fun to read because you've got (laughs) that first piece that's a little wild. Yeah. And then you've got this guy, and I'm like, "Mm, no good's going to come of this. But this brings us to Ida. And Ida is awesome. (laughs) And Ida is the character that you gave that habit of rifling through papers in your research. And she is the woman who has to read all of the biographies of what she calls capital G, capital M, great men. Yes, that's right. And she does all of your research. Yes. (laughs) Because Andrew Bevel has hired her to ghostwrite his autobiography. 
That's right. And I don't think we're giving up too much there because it does explain some of the strangeness of the voice in the second section of the book, because she's decided that part of her job is to create this mythic American financier. Yeah. But let's talk about Ida's background for a second. She's very smart. She's self-made. She is absolutely a writer. She's a wonderful character, but this is not necessarily her world. No, no. So Ida is, she's one of my favorite people ever. I don't know where she came from because she's so good in the world. She's so effective and a go-getter and just in a way that I I am not. So I don't know what I tapped into, but I just wish I could channel that in my everyday life. Ida lives in Brooklyn, not too far from where I live in real life. Not anymore. It used to be a, a sort of a little Italian community in a certain part of Brooklyn. And her father is an Italian anarchist who was exiled from Italy, sort of in the early 1900s. And he has a press, he's a typesetter, an old sort of movable type press, where he prints sort of uh, wedding invitations, cards, and things he despises because they're for the bourgeoisie. But when in between jobs, he prints anarchist uh, newspapers. And Ida is initially this scrappy kid who teaches herself how to type and sort of the basics of accounting and stenography. And she ultimately, she's very talented and she's an excellent writer. She's bright since she was a kid. And ultimately lands this job as Bevel's secretary. So again, I would pause here and say also that the novel explores sort of Remember how we said that the women were erased from these worlds. And so for the first part, sort of it's the wife, what being a wife meant in this configuration. And the second role that women were given was the role of secretary, right? And this is something very interesting to me too, how in the 20s and 30s, women start entering the white collar labor force in the United States and can aspire to ascend to the middle class without having to marry into it. You know, and this is a big, 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 big shift. And there are new technologies at play and how sort of the the bodies of these women interact with these new technologies, office technologies is also very interesting to me. Ida, the hero of this third part, is told by these men. Her father, who's a very strong-willed person, her boss, who is this complicated man we've just been talking about, her boyfriend, who is also ambitious in his own way. And she is completely on purpose, sort of alone among these men and has to navigate the situation. And she also has more money than any of the men. She does. And and they resent resent her immensely for that. I should also say, I think this may be of interest, that this whole section, the third document in the book, is narrated as a bit of a flashback. So it's it's a framed narrative. So there are frames within frames within frames in the book. And Ida, at this point, is 70 years old. She is a tremendously successful author. She's published a number of books. She contributes to The New Yorker on a regular basis basis. She's well known. And I read a lot of new journalism, especially by women. And she's that kind of writer. I had to learn how to write that way too. I should say I created style guides for each section with, you know, how punctuation is used by each one of these authors and how certain clauses are used and deployed and what kind of vocabulary just to have some sense of consistency. And I have to say this section, the Ida section, was the one that was most heavily edited and rewritten and tweaked to achieve this very polished, elegant, but invisible tone. Like I didn't want to to stand out, which is 
sometimes a hard thing for me to do. Ida is still slightly unreliable. There are things that she decides, and obviously we're not going to get totally into the weeds here because that's one of the great pleasures of reading this section, is Uh, putting together pieces that Ida either doesn't completely have or doesn't want to have. What do you mean doesn't want to have? I think there are a couple of moments, and I'm I'm trying to dance around it a little bit, but there are a couple of moments where she sort of reveals herself as she's working on different pages, and there's a moment at dinner where she's shocked because Bevel recites a piece of her life back to her because yes. she's given it to his wife. Yes. And as a reader, I felt like, oh, a moment like this was going to have to come because of the way Bevel was responding to what she was writing and how she was writing and that he can't ever lose control. Right. Yes. And yet she's still surprised. And I'm like, lady, you're spending more time with this dude than any of us ever did. (laughs) I realize we're talking about fictional characters here. But that moment, I think for her was shocking. That moment was shocking. And it also speaks to Andrew Bevel, her boss. It speaks to his greed, you know, which goes well beyond money or material goods. He has this symbolic greed too. He claims everything for himself that will enhance and enlarge his image. And to me, it was it was the, that that situation of having your best ideas stolen and pitched back at you, not even to you. And it's a moment when you feel both crazy and enraged. Like, how can this man not realize that I told him this, like, you know, five minutes ago, and now he's completely appropriated this thought. And there's this selective amnesia that has erased me out of it. And he just, oh, look what I thought. Look what I've come up with. And that to me was a very important moment. Also, because Again, it has to do with trust and it has to do with what is someone's life story and how even people with the best intentions end up inevitably appropriating other sort of narrative strands or bits and bobs and pieces and incorporating them into their own narrative and how each story is to a certain extent, well-intentioned or not, a, a bit of a collage. And it also leads you to think, what is authenticity? What is truly my life? Am I in possession of my own narrative? I doubt it, to be honest. I doubt it. I mean, it doesn't make us all jerks like Andrew Bevel is. I think we feel overly possessive about our identity and we put too much stock in how cohesive supposedly our stories or histories are, you know? And this is also why this kind of testimonial tribe that I see in literature of so many writers presenting their own selves as a finished thing, you know, forward is something that I view with great wonder. And Ida, I think, represents a lot of what you just said. But that moment that we were just talking about at dinner where he recites a piece of her story back to her is also when she realizes how petty capital G, capital M great man is, how petty he is and what his actual desire is. And I don't want to give too much away, but he wants to counter a narrative. He wants to control, as you said, his entire persona, but he wants to control the way that other people see him. I think you're totally right. And thank you for that insight. But I would also add to what you just said. Ida doesn't only realize how petty he is. Mm -hmm. She also realizes how powerful she is. Yes, because she is molding a life for him. That's an immense power to have. And she's very good at it, too. At one point, she even mentions that 
she's a little bit of a Frankenstein. He's her monster. Yeah. And she's the doctor and she has figured this out. And it is pretty terrific, but mixed in with the shock and everything else. There are a couple of other writers. I and mean, we've talked about Edith Wharton. We've talked about Henry James. Well, Frankenstein's a very important book to me. I, I keep going so, back. Yeah. Okay. Let's take a minute on Frankenstein for a second, because that's not necessarily something that you see paired up with Wharton and James. And then there are two other women that show up later in the book, two writers that I happen to love, Virginia oh. Woolf and Jean Rees. Yeah. Can we talk about this spectrum of literary influences and dig in on Frankenstein? Oh, boy. To start with Frankenstein, it's it's a book I've written about, like I've written uh, a couple of essays on it. And it also informed my first novel, In the Distance. It's, you know, Frankenstein's big footprint is to be found everywhere in that first book. In this case as well, I mean, it's thinking of Mary Shelley and thinking of Victor Frankenstein's creation, this body made out of, which is a hodgepodge of bodies. And we we're talking about collage a moment ago and how personal narratives are a collage to some extent always. At one point, the thing about Andrew Bevel, this tycoon, is that he is a pretty bland person. He's not the big, strong man that he would like to be on the page. What happens in the book at some point, more maybe than halfway into it, is that Ida, his secretary, because she keeps transcribing what he says, and he's displeased with what he reads. He wants it to be more forceful, to have more weight on the page, which is not him. It's just not him. So she decides to give him the voice that he wishes he had. So she calls from all these different sources and says, I would create a monster just like Dr. Frankenstein did. Out of all these bodies, I would create textual bodies. I would create his voice. And even her own father is one of these voices. So, so I'm very interested in this figure in this trope, in this metaphor of generating new life out of leftovers. That to me is something very powerful and very interesting. And also the agency of, of this woman in that process. It's a trope that really works too, as each page and each section, I know you keep calling them the documents, but as each it's section okay. reveals itself, it's really the way you peel the layers off and the way Big moments are revealed in very quiet ways. Thank you for noticing so that. satisfying. I mean, <laughs> thank you for noticing that because the temptation here of having big explosive reveals was mm. strong. And because of the formal configuration of the book, it would have been easy to do that, to have like big reveals. And I decided to not do that for the most part. So I can freely say like when, when Andrew Bevel dies, I don't care about this spoiler because it's not a spoiler. It's presented well in advance. Like it's not that he died. And, you know, that's just a small example to show that to me, it was about something else. It wasn't about pyrotechnics or, you know, fireworks of any kind. Yeah. We're always aware of the character's humanity. We're always aware of their fallibility. We're always aware of their desires. I mean, they're yes. really alive on the page. They're all very different people, but they're all very, very alive on the page. And you mentioned that Ida was not, you weren't quite sure where she came from, but if she's the biggest surprise, do you have a favorite moment? In the book? Yeah. I have to say my, my favorite moment is the fourth section or document, however you want to call them, which is a personal journal, a diary that comes to light. It was a moving thing to write. It's a thing where I feel 
hope this doesn't sound gross, but I, f- I feel very exposed in that section uh, personally, not because of, I am that person, because I'm obviously not, but there is an emotional texture there. It feels very intimate to me. You mentioned uh, Virginia Woolf or Jean Rhys. To me, that whole section also is just as the very first section, the novel within the novel is also a love letter, mainly two writers, Edith Wharton and Henry James, that are all important to me. Like I wouldn't be the human being I am, let alone the writer. I wouldn't be the person I am without Henry James, especially, and Edith Wharton. But the fourth section is a love letter then to another big part of who I am as a person and as a writer. And I try to talk about writers I love, overtly, they're mentioned overtly, or their style is mimicked lovingly here and there. Uh, Musicians I love. Music is very important to me. And music is very important in this book. It has an outsized presence in the book, music. And it was a little bit of like a cabinet of curiosities. I viewed it as that, you know, sort of a little exhibition of things that I loved presented in this loving way. The emotional payoff at the end of the book is so significant. And all of these threads we've been talking about, the history and the finance and the ego and all of it, the identity, it all pays off in the end in really spectacular ways. Although it is a very quiet section. Yes. Again, no pyrotechnics, but the payoff is so significant. I'm giddy thinking about people getting to read this book in its entirety because it's the perfect mix of big ideas, right? We're talking about the mythology of America, right? All of the things that come under this mythology of America and the American dream and how we see it and how we perceive each other under the rubric of the American dream and the American Mm -hmm. mythology. And these characters, even Andrew Bevel, who Not someone I would necessarily want to sit next to at a dinner party, but at the same time, the way all of these threads come together is really great. So before I let you go, because we are sort of bumping up on our time limits, but why do you write? It's a good question. Um, I write because I need to. There is a very visceral, but it's not sort of a heroic need that I have that mission or some, some kind of, you know, I need to because it gives me pleasure like nothing else does. I, I'm, I'm always baffled by writers who view writing as a form of martyrdom. You don't have to do this. To me, it's those moments where meaning and beauty and emotion come together. That's what I'm after in life. And it's something that only literature can deliver. That particular triangulation of meaning, that semantic dimension of allowing us to see and understand the world through meaning and words, together with with emotion, together with aesthetic beauty. That's the experience I quite literally live for. And that's the experience that trust delivers. As a reader, that is the experience that I got from trust and from the Rasks and from Mm. the Bevels and from Ida. You're going to make me weep now. (laughs) No, no, no. We don't have to do that. But that's why I asked that question, because it's clear that you were so immersed in this world and everyone speaks for themselves. Every single character speaks for him or herself. And it is a really fantastic experience. I cannot wait for this book 
to get into the hands of readers everywhere. It is a big idea book that's driven by great characters, great story, and I dare people to put it down. I you double dog very... dare people to put it down. <laughs> <laughs> You're very generous. And I loved your reading of the book, which was not only generous, but also very keen and insightful. And this this has been such a pleasure. Oh, good. Well, let's do it again sometime. <laughs> <laughs> Whenever you like. Hernan Diaz, thank you so much. Trust is out now and everyone should just go read it. And if you haven't read In the Distance... It's unlike anything you've read. Yes, it's kind of a typical Western, but also it's kind of not. And that's all I'm going to say. But you really should read that as well. But read Trust first. (laughs) Thank you again for joining us, Hernan. Hello, readers. Here's another TBR top off for you where we recommend extra espresso shots to add to today's literary latte Trust by Hernan Diaz. I'm Mark, coming to you from my Barnes & Noble store in Cincinnati. And with me is my favorite book buddy, Margie. Hello, Margie. Hello, Mark. Glad to be here. I am coming to you from my store in Northville, Michigan. And it's freezing cold. Come on. Yeah, I thought it was going to be nice and pleasant, but... I think Mother Nature had some other ideas in the Midwest area. So <laughs> there's we'll snow. Go with the punches. There's snow is yeah. what I'm saying. <laughs> oh, that is ridiculous. Hard pass. No, thank you. Mm-hmm. I'm so sorry. Well, let's warm up by talking about some books. What do you think? Mm-hmm. Excellent. I'm going to go ahead and go first. Um, I chose a book that kind of like trust has a sort of story within a story within a story nesting doll feel. And that is The Magnificent Blind Assassin by Margaret Atwood. My favorite. It's so fantastic. So this is what feels like a complicated story, but really just you get into the flow of it so easily and it becomes this wonderful puzzle box. You follow a pulp sci-fi writer as he is telling his lover about his newest work which is eerily parallel to their own relationship. You also follow a woman who wrote a book about a couple discussing a pulp sci-fi novel that eerily parallels their relationship. You also follow a woman recollecting the life of her sister who killed herself after writing a book about, well, you get it, or you think you get it. The layers, the connecting puzzle pieces, this book just makes for such a satisfying reading experience that is largely about women pushing against the submissive constraints of the 1940s, which Margaret Atwood is known for some feminist flavors to her writing. And this book is no exception, but the book is also about mystery and love and just masterful storytelling. When you get to the end, you're just going to feel like you need to just think on this book for a couple of weeks. It's really fantastic. I love this book so much. So please pick up The Blind Assassin by Margaret Atwood. She's my favorite. It's my twist your arm and give me your favorite author answer. Nice. The ones that I have today are inspired by the multi-generational aspect of trust. And I am a sucker for a saga. Barkskins by Annie Proop is a sweeping, beautifully written, multi-generational saga that tells the story of early Canada and the United States through the lens of one of their most important industries, timber. So barkskin is a term for a woodcutter. The story begins with two French indentured servants, Rene and Charles, 
Arriving in Canada, then known as New France, the two men's experiences diverge and step with their differing personalities, but their descendants through the next 300 years are inextricably linked. Along the way, Prue takes us throughout North America with stops in Europe, China, and New Zealand, bringing to life an industry that shaped commerce for centuries. And that commerce comes at a great price, including the decimation of Indigenous peoples through disease and forestry location, and the decimation, of course, of the forests and the seemingly endless supply of trees in the new world that convinced those that were destroying it that there's no need to pace myself and the supply will never run dry, you know. There is also, of course, plenty of deceit, heartbreak, family secrets, and fortunes made and lost, as well as an overarching warning about abusing our natural resources. This is the kind of book you sink into. You are absolutely inhabiting every space being described, which in my opinion is the mark of an excellent story. So for all your saga needs, please read Barkskins by Annie Pro. Fantastic, Margie. Wonderful pick. Very, very, very satisfying. Oh, sometimes a big whopper is just what you need. I wholeheartedly agree. <laughs> so that's going to do it for today's TBR Top Off. Thank you so much for listening to Port Over. Please make sure to rate and subscribe and follow us on our socials at Barnes & Noble. I'm Mark. You can follow my home store at BN Westchester, or you can hop onto my Instagram at bookmark79. And my name is Margie. You can follow my store at BN Northville, and you can find me on Instagram at Margie Bookbrain. Thanks so much for reading, everybody. Happy reading. Poured Over is a Barnes & Noble production. The show is available on Apple, Spotify, and Stitcher. Please rate and review us wherever you listen to podcasts.